I think people tend to think too much of, of me. Did like peak at like 14 years old. And ever since then, I've just been like going on a downward spiral. I was able to do these things, not because I'm great, but because I sacrificed my social life. People think that because I've done these things in the past, these great things in the past, that all of a sudden I have this, this clear 70 year plan of where I'm going to go. It's absolutely not the case. And I don't really know what the future holds. Today's guest on how they're doing it is Peter Yang, someone who has yet to explore what's out there, but has also experienced great success at a very young age. His journey started when he became an international best-selling author at the age of 15 and later founded Reviewerly. His book, The Art of Writing, sold more than 4,000 copies worldwide and his company has been featured on the Global News Radio, The Hamilton Spectator, Cable 14, and the front page of Product Hunt. One would assume that someone as successful as Peter, especially this early in his journey, has his entire future all figured out for him and the opportunities are lined up right outside his door. But is that actually the case? Well, there's only one way to find out. My biggest fear is not clicking that record button before I have an interview. Like I've had a dream about it before. Well, I have a story that's really similar to that. Like when I was um, like last year, when everything was online, I had a physics teacher, right? And he was like recording all of his lectures. But one time he forgot to like, unmute his speaker and he gave this he gave like an entire like two hour lecture and none of us heard a single word he was saying the sad part is that none of us even took the initiative to tell him that he was muted. <laughs> like i guess we just didn't care I, I don't know it was i thought it was i thought that was the more surprising part but so i was gonna ask are you in hamilton right now yes yeah I was, I don't know why I feel like it's getting a lot busier now that university students are coming back. I don't know. Did you notice anything different? Uh, I don't really live near the McMaster area, oh, but I think it's kind of true. like, yeah, like it has, I, I, I've heard in general, like McMaster has a pretty lively, like student population. And I, I've definitely visited there before. I actually gave a kind of speech um, at McMaster a few years ago. I thought it was like a really nice campus. Um, it's like a lot of student activity. So yeah, I don't think I've realized any, um, any more busyness. That's, that's good. Cause a lot of people are going back in person next week. So there's that half filling the area, <laughs> but, uh, have you always lived in Hamilton? Yes. Yeah. I was yeah born here. I moved houses kind of in my like sixth grade, but it was like literally just 500 meters away from where I was. So I've always kind of been in this area. Yeah. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the type of child that you were and the environment in which you grew up in? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a very broad question. I wouldn't say I've thought too much about my childhood, although I would say probably if I could like use one word to describe it, I, I'd probably say I was a pretty like rebellious child. And what I mean by that is like compared to my brother, I feel like my parents took a much more disciplined approach. You know, they, they would uh, you know, tell him what to do, uh, perhaps, you know, admonish him when he wasn't doing things properly. Kind of that traditional Asian parenting, which you may or may not be familiar with. I feel like with me, since I was a younger child, I didn't really get that discipline. Um, and I, I kind of had the freedom or the, the liberty to, to kind of do whatever I wanted <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. 
Um, and so I got away with a lot of things. You know, I would I would whine a lot. I was very loud, quite rebellious. And uh, I would say in elementary school, I you know some of my teachers uh, would would kind of yell at me or say, oh, you know, quiet down. Uh, I another memory I have from uh, elementary school. And I went to Buchanan Park, which is an elementary school where which is a bit unique because they have these yearly musicals essentially, or we call them operas, where you know you every year culminates in this musical performance where, you know, students from every grade participate. I really loved going to that school, but one funny thing I remember was um, in EQAO uh, in grade six, I'm sure you remember EQAO. Uh, I, I made like this like dare with my friends where like we all wore suits to class and we were like all like in three piece suits, like writing the exam. I thought it was really funny. I, I don't think my teacher was was as pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Just being rebellious in general. I think yeah, that was- it's funny because if you told me this without telling me that you're the youngest child, I would have assume that you are i know that's me like acting up on my stereotypes but because i also have two younger brothers and the youngest one is the one that gets like a free pass and everything and i'm the oldest one the one that got a lot of discipline and like responsibility and things like that and so now i unconsciously do these things while he's getting the free pass and so like whenever i see him doing anything i'm and my mom or my dad say oh it's fine like whatever and i look at them and i'm like it wasn't fine when I was his age. Yeah, but. yeah. I wonder why that is. Like, honestly, I, I guess it's. I guess it seems to be like a tr- like. There, there seems to be a pattern here, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a one-off. Yeah, I guess that's like a, a psychology question. Yeah, I remember hearing about that pattern in psychology classes. Like, I remember in grade eleven taking a psychology class, and then a first year or second year of university, and I never believed that pattern was true. I'd always be like, it can't be that the middle child is like this. It can't be that the adult like the oldest child is like this and then i see it in my own family because we're three so i have the oldest youngest and the middle and i see it play out exactly as the psychology classes said it would be and i'm like wait no way (laughs) well the good news is that it tends to be that the oldest uh child is the in general is generally the smartest right so yeah like that's that's also another um thing that's been studied it tends to be like i think it's related to the fact that they receive more discipline and they have more responsibility like a lot of studies have shown that if you're like the oldest child you tend to have like like there, there tends to be like a correlation where you have like a ho- slightly higher IQ. Yeah, like, I think so. it plays a lot into the whole, you know, uh, being responsible for a lot of things and, you know, being expected to do well. And, you know, because you were the first one. So all of the mental power went into you at first or like the oldest person. And then now you're expected to take care of the ones after you and things like that. So it exactly. kind of the, the environment that you grow up in leads to maybe the oldest child being more hardworking or something like that, but it might not not necessarily apply to everyone. I think it's like you kind of like mature a bit earlier. You mm-hmm. kind of find your yeah. place a bit earlier. There's you know if you're a kid, you have more time to incubate and you know do whatever do do whatever you want. So you say that you're a very rebellious child, but to me, you also sound like you were a very ambitious child. You yeah. know, you had a lot of goals that you wanted to achieve when you were very young. So maybe tell us a little bit about first what those goals were, and then you know what went into making some of those goals come true. Right. Well, I, before I dive into that, I think um, I. I I just want to focus on that uh, statement you just made about, um, you know, being rebellious and, and being ambitious. I think some people might see these things as being kind of juxtaposed mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, kind of mutually exclusive, but I actually don't think that's true. I actually think that being rebellious and being ambitious, like go hand in hand. Um, I think they're actually quite correlated. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I recently, I've been reading like a lot more like biographies. Uh, There's like one author in particular, his name is Walter Isaacson. He's written like biographies on people like Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, 
he recently wrote a biography about this person who came up with CRISPR. He wrote a biography on Einstein. Uh, and I noticed reading these biographies that a lot of these highly successful people were kind of rebellious as children. And and I'm not trying to say, oh, that means I'm going to be like that. No, but like, I, uh, it, it's kind of like there's this pattern of behavior where it tends to be that very highly successful and ambitious people are kind of rebellious by temperament um, in the sense that they don't like to receive conventional wisdom. They don't like just being told what to do or, or following orders. If I could think of the opposite uh, of, of what they are, it would be like the military where you have to follow very specific orders and always do what you're told. So I, I do think that ambition and rebellion go hand in hand because to be ambitious, um, you have to do things that are new and different and innovative. And if you're conventional minded, if you're if you're a conformist and you do what you're told all the time, you can't, you don't really have the liberty to do those new things because you're, you're always doing what's already been done, uh, you, you kind of need a rebellious attitude to do things that are ambitious is, is kind of what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. So I guess one of your, so going back to your question, uh, like, as in like what kind of ambitious goals um, I had as a kid, I guess this is partly something I talk about in my TED talk. Uh, and that was like writing a book, uh, essentially. I think that was for the first half of my life. That was like my biggest goal ever. <laughs> I know that sounds really um, like naive or like, it seems like cliche, but I think the reason why I always wanted to get to write a book was because I think starting around like grade five, grade six, like I started reading a lot more like literature. I started reading a lot more books. Like when I was really young, like before that, like in grade three, grade four, like I hated reading. Like I absolutely hated reading books. My parents would force me to read. Like my mom would go to my room and knock on my door and say, hey, Peter, why aren't you reading? Uh, and then I would like read these online comics and say I was reading, even though I wasn't like, come on, like they were like, five words. It was mostly pictures, right? But yeah, like I, I started reading a lot more books kind of around elementary school, middle school-ish. Um, I read like The Great Gatsby. Um, I read The Catcher in the Rye. I read Grapes of Wrath. Um, but anyway, because I was reading so many of those books, I'm like, man, it would be so cool if I wrote my own book, right? <laughs> um, and so like, I, yeah, that, that was kind of the inspiration. I saw these people reading books, like writing books. And I'm like, why can't I write a book? Um, and because I was super naive back then, I didn't realize that writing a book might actually be something hard because I was like, I was stupid back then, right? I was just like, hey, I, I want to write a book. So I just decided I'd write a book. And it actually ter- ended up working out. So yeah, I would say like writing a book was probably the biggest ambition I had. What did you see as a reward out of writing your book? This is a question I've thought about more than I did in the past. Because, you know, in, when I was younger, I didn't think so much about, you know, what is the weight or significance of writing a book. In my mind, I knew that writing a book was something to be proud of. I knew that writing a book was something to aim for. I didn't know what the end result was going to be. I didn't expect my book to sell any copies. I just wanted to do it because it seemed like a fun thing to do. Um, and and, and I, I know that sounds, again, like really cliche. It's like, like that's, not, that's not reasonable thinking at all. Like you should think about what's the outcome? What's the result of this? Um, but for me back then, I was just totally focused on, okay, writing a book seems cool. It seems like something I would be proud of doing. uh, So I'm going to do it. I didn't really think about what would the financial upside of that be or any of that. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't sound naive at all. And I actually wish that's how we think now. I know that's how a lot of people think when they're younger, because there isn't that many factors that we're aware of as as children. But now, whenever we want to do something, we have to consider all those factors. And once we think about all those factors, we no longer feel like we are capable of doing it. And I think the reason that you were able to publish one in the first place was because you didn't think about these things and you you didn't have a goal outcome that you wanted to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that was actually, that, that essentially encapsulated 
encapsulates um, what I was talking about in my TED talk. Like when I was younger, I used to be a lot more optimistic. I, I use the word optimism. Perhaps we say naivete um, or you know childishness or whatever. But I use the word optimism to describe how you know when I was younger, I didn't think about all of those negative consequences mm-hmm. of what could go wrong. I kind of just went for it. Whereas now it's like, I, I always think about, you know, what, what is the outcome going to be? You know, what are the pros? What are the cons? Like how, you know, what's the risk assessment, right? Um, those are, those are never things I considered in the past. So in a sense, I've become more pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I talk about in my TED talk is that there's this correlation um, between intelligence and pessimism. It tends to be that the more intelligent you are, the more pessimistic you are, yet the more successful you are, the more optimistic you are. So it almost seems like those things are, are clashing, right? It's mm-hmm. like, like, are you intelligent or are you successful? <laughs> like, um, and, and so that was kind of the idea I was trying to get across in my TED Talk, that the things are not mutually exclusive. You can be both intelligent and you can be uh, successful through, through mm-hmm. being optimistic. I think this is probably a mindset that one needs to develop in order to be able to do it, because regardless of what you do, you will unconsciously think of all the factors that come into something and you'll have to you'll you'll always think about oh maybe these people are not gonna like it oh maybe i'm not qualified like you can't help yourself but you need to develop the skills and the mindset to be able to stop those from getting to you and being able to do whatever you do and i really like that you called it optimism Mm because i was that kind of child as well like i would want to do whatever it is i want to do and i would not listen to any of what's around me but I never called it optimism. I always called it just my desire to work really hard and yeah. that people say I can't do something. Well, I think that's a form of rebellion, though, too. You that's see what true. I mean? like, and, and that's why I'm saying what the concepts are related, right? It's like optimism is related to ambition, which is related to rebellion. Mm-hmm. And I think like you, I think that I didn't call it optimism either as a kid. You know, when I was a kid, I just thought I was being special. Like I, I just thought I was special. Like, oh nope, you know, I'm you know, I'm the special person. Everyone else doesn't understand me, right? Like that's too bad for them. Um, but like when I read these books, um, like these biographies, I realized that I wasn't alone. Um, and that a lot of these people kind of felt that way. And I feel like when you said rebellion at first, I thought of like a negative connotation. So I wonder mm-hmm. why we've built that kind of negative association with that word, because not ne- it's not necessarily a negative thing when you're thinking about it, when it comes to ambition and, you know, wanting right. to do something, right? Yeah, I, I would say, well, it's always a complex issue. I, I, it's kind of like the issue between communism and capitalism, right? <laughs> oh, how, I, I like how conversations always spiral into communism and capitalism. Um, <laughs> But I think it's true because when you talk about rebellion, it's not something that can work if everyone does it. You know, if everyone is rebellious and there's no one to follow rule and order, society would never function. It would not be a productive society. Like you need, you you know, you need managers and you need employers and employees. Again, this is a capitalist mindset, of course. If I if I was, you know, the communists are like, no, what are you talking about? But it's, you know, if we're thinking about the way that society works in the Western world, you do need people to follow orders. Um, you do need, you know, if I'm saying, oh, we're going to meet at 1 p.m. today, I'm going to be rebellious. No, I'm going to meet at 3 p.m. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> so you, we do, there does need to be kind of a sense of trust and order in society. Mm-hmm. But on the individual scale, like, you know, if we're not talking about society at large, if we're talking about you, um, if we're talking about me and how we can improve our productivity or success, and I think rebellion is, is a good trait to have. Going back to the like your whole journey on writing your book, maybe tell us. I know you've wrote, written several. You tried to write several. Yeah, you had several I, stories that you wanted to write, and then it took you several tries to get to yep. the one that you actually published. So maybe take us through what how, what changed every time you wrote one. Yeah. So I guess my process was um, every summer I tried to like write a book. 
Uh, and I think this is like starting in like when I was 11, so like grade six, like I just made a commitment to myself, like every summer, I'm going to try to write a book. I'm going to like write five pages a day. You know, I'm going to work on this manuscript, try to be disciplined. And I originally started out with writing novels because that's what I was familiar with. And because, you know, I'd written, or rather I'd I'd read a lot of novels. Uh, Again, I was talking about how I'd read The Great Gatsby and A Catcher in the Rye, those books. Um, And so I was inspired to, you know, to write a fiction book. Uh, And the first fiction book I wrote was, uh, I think I I talked about this in the TED Talk. It was like, it was like a story based off of Hatchet. Uh, which is another popular book. It's basically like this 13-year-old who basically gets in a plane crash. He has to like survive in the forest in the wilderness. Except in my book, the kid wasn't 13. He was 11 because I was 11. (laughs) Um, uh, So that was kind of the first book. I I guess like the reason that it never worked out in the end is I think I just lost the discipline or focus. Like I I, I get really excited at the start, right? And then like a week later or two weeks later, I just move on or I'd like do something else or I'd want to play video games. Um, So um, yeah, so I, I guess I was like, I, I, I guess I'm not too sure how to answer your question because I'm not sure necessarily my mindset changed year per year. I just think maybe I got luckier. Like I think I just eventually landed an idea that worked. I think I had a lot of ideas that didn't work, and then I just eventually found a gold mine that did. But I don't I don't necessarily think my fundamental mindset changed. I think I always my commitment was always okay. Every summer I'm going to try to write a book and just kind of see us you know how far I get. And also I know that you said that your mom would help you, like she'll make tea in the morning and things like that. What was your parents' opinion about you wanting to write a book at that age? Okay. Um, two things. Uh, number one about the tea in the morning thing. My mom still does that. <laughs> in I love fact, that. Yeah, the thing is, like, I just finished my first semester of, of grade 12, right? Like, I was, like, doing physics, and it was, like, really hard. And then, like, my mom was like, oh, oh my God, I see Peter struggling. I'm going to, like, give him tea. Like, <laughs> so, it actually helps a lot. So, like, yeah, like, my mom would come to my room. She'd, like, refill my tea. Um, or she gave me like a foot bath, you know, like you know, you have like a tub and you put like hot water in it. Um, so I thought that was that was really nice. My mom still does that. In terms of my parents' opinion, my parents have been yeah pretty supportive of it. I don't think my parents ever admonished me or reprimanded me and saying you know oh you're wasting your time you know you're, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, I think my parents were were generally uh, very supportive. I don't think they necessarily believed I would actually pull it off. I think they were just like, oh, here's Peter being another, you know, a dreamy kid, you know, whatever, starry-eyed kid. Uh, they just let me do it because they thought it was cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the best explanation, honestly. Um, but yeah, they just let me do my thing and eventually it worked out. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, did they push you to do it in any way? Because I know some parents would have that kind of mindset, but it's nice to see that they let you be be creative, do what you want. Yeah. And I think this is tied into what I was talking about at the beginning was like my parents not like disciplining me very much. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like, if it was my brother, like my parents would tell my brother what to do. Oh, you got to clean the dishes. You know, you got to do the laundry. Like for me, my parents like didn't do any, like they, they, they didn't tell me to do anything, man. Like I, I had total like liberty. I saw like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to write a book. And it was like, they didn't really have a very strong opinion about that. Just, they just let me do it. So the first time and the second time, you wrote the book and then obviously you said that you couldn't like discipline yourself to keep going and to get to the end. And then eventually you decide to write about writing. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? (laughs) I think it was because maybe through the reading process, I became more interested in writing, right? I feel like reading and writing are intimately related. So uh, I, I was like reading a lot and then I tried to write books and I, you know, maybe part of the reason that I wasn't able to write a book was because I wasn't good at writing. (laughs) So then I started becoming a lot more interested in writing itself, 
you know, it's kind of like, it was kind of like a philosophical quest. It's like, oh, I'm not good enough at this. I have to examine myself and like take it from like a, a meta approach, right? It's like a recursion where it's like, it's like a thing referring to itself. Um, so I guess it was kind of like through my, through writing the book, I became interested in the practice of writing itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I would kind of uh, put it that way. So then I started like just doing a lot more research. Like I started like taking like courses uh, on writing and reading more books about writing. My seventh grade math teacher, whose name was Mr. Deans, uh, he actually gave me a book about writing as well. And it was like, it was really cool. He, he actually gave me a lot of books. He gave me like a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which was like this stoic philosophy book. He gave me a book about writing, which was like, which he himself like annotated. It had like all these coffee stains and like, <laughs> like sticky notes everywhere. It was, a, it was really nice. So like, I just, I don't know. I, I became really interested in, in the practice of writing through reading books and through struggling to write. And just, I guess at the end of it, I'm like, I was struggling to come up with book ideas, right? It's like, oh, well, this story plot didn't work. This story didn't work. It's like, why don't I just write a book about writing? So that's kind of what I did. I know you said that you your mindset didn't change, but hearing this, I would argue that it did. And <laughs> rather than writing about, you know, something that you weren't necessarily interested in, but, you know, you were inspired by like the hatchet and things like that, you actually found something that you learned based on your experience and you were interested in it and then you let it out on paper. So I would argue that things did change. There we go. That's that, that's an insight I hadn't thought of. So that that's why, you know, having conversation is, is always good. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever go to school and like tell your friends that you're writing a book or, you know? No, no, no never. Um, I just think like when I was in elementary school, like I, I don't know, like none of my friends were like doing that kind of thing. Right. I just didn't think it was a thing to, to bring up in conversation. Like most of my, you know, back then I was like, I don't even, like, what did I even talk about with my friends back in elementary school? It was like, we did like a lot of role plays. Like we'd like pretend that we were like video game characters um, or we do like, we talk about, yeah, we just like talk about video games or like, pre- yeah, like pretend we were like, oh, I'm going to be this warrior. I'm going to fight you. You know, it was like that kind of stuff. I, I never, I, I didn't even, yeah, I never even thought of the, of the idea of, of, of telling my friends I was writing a book. It, it never came, it never came across my, my mind. And then you started and they started writing the manuscript for your book. And I know that like, in five months, you said that you got a publishing contract and then in 10 months, you actually published your book. So how was that experience like? Because obviously when you went into it, you didn't know what it's like writing a book and how much work it takes to write a book. But yeah. then having gone through that, what are some of the challenges that you came across? What were some of the surprising things that you saw? And like, what did you learn through that experience? I would say writing the book was probably the easiest part. Like, I think <laughs> writing the book, I had a lot of optimism going in and I just like, it didn't take me that long to write a book. It took me like a couple of weeks <laughs> to, to get like a first draft done. Right. So um, that was like, I had a lot of fuel to like write the whole book and all of that. It was a much harder process trying to get it published um, because you're right. I, I knew absolutely nothing about the publishing process. I kind of thought like, Oh, Hey, I wrote this book. It's done. I'm just going to throw it in, you know, just here you go. Like all these publishers are going to be, you know, coming on my doorstep, knocking and saying, Hey, here's a, here's $10,000. Here's a publishing deal. Um, it didn't work out that way at all. Like I, yeah, I ended up emailing like tons and tons. I don't remember the exact number, like maybe like 50 or a hundred or something. It was a lot of like cold emails to people. Um, the way it works, at least when I was doing it is like, you would attach like a cover letter. You would explain to the, the agent or the publisher, like you would give them a synopsis of your book. Like here are the main ideas. 
you know, like sincerely Peter Yang. Right. Um, so I, I do all that. I attach my cover letter. I attach maybe the first chapter of the book or the first three chapters. I'd email it to like a hundred publishers, or I'd go on like these different websites that had email addresses, like these databases. And they would have like the name of the publisher. They would have their email address. And I would just go through the spreadsheet, like just like a, like a drone, just like from top to bottom and just like email every single person. And like, basically none of them responded. There was only two responses. I think there was one response from this guy whose name was like Jeff and, and he expressed interest in my book. It took him like a year to express interest though. Like I, I, I like sent my book, like, and then like a year later he like responded and then he was like, Hey, this is interesting. And then I never heard from him again. And then so the the other publisher that I pitched, uh, which is like this Indiana-based publishing house, they actually did accept me. Uh, And, you know, that was, you know, the only, (laughs) the only, the only publishing deal um, I ever got. And 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 one interesting thing to note about that is in all of these cover letters, I would mention my age. I would say, hey, I'm like this aspiring 13-year-old, 14-year-old writer, right? And I thought that that would be a hook, essentially. It would be something that would you know, I thought that would be maybe an attractive feature. Uh, but I think it was actually quite the opposite. I think it repelled a lot of publishers because no publishers, they don't want to take on a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, right? Again, that was part of my my dreamy, perhaps overly optimistic, naive nature where I'm like, okay, like they're going to love me because I'm young. But I, it didn't work that way in the publishing industry. Uh, so the, like the one time I pitched that publisher was the one time that I didn't mention my age and they gave me a publishing deal. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very cool that you say this because it it really just took one yes for you to make whatever you wanted to work. And that applies okay. to a lot of people more than you think, like people in university, college, higher than that. Like, for example, a lot of the opportunities that I had access to, first of all, I had to reach out myself. Like it wasn't something that I could find on the internet and just apply to or whatever. And then I sent out so many emails for so many things and Either I would be left unread or I'd be like, they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, but like, I don't need you or I don't (laughs) think that you would be perfect for it or whatever. But eventually you just need that one. Yes. And then the yeses will start rolling afterwards. And now that you have that in your experience list, you can use that to help you get more opportunities in the future alongside your skills that you've developed during that. Yeah. I mean, you cold emailed me about this opportunity. You just <laughs> Don't expose me. me. <laughs> no, no, but that, I think that's demonstrating like your point, right? It's like, you just, you gotta, you gotta just seek out opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, like, you know, I, I wasn't aware that you were viewing like the Ted talk conference or any of that. Uh, so like when you emailed me out of the blue, I just thought it was just random. Email. Like, I, you know, yeah. like, you get like a lot of emails, right? Like and most of them, like 99% of them are like spam. Like for me, I get a lot of emails that are like, Hey, do you want to like, do you want to hire a remote development team from like, uh, like, like Eastern Europe? Like, do you want to get a software engineer from Portugal to work for your company? Like in these emails, I get them all the time. So like, I just, I've learned to like drown them out. I still tend to read them. Mm-hmm. Though. Like, I, I won't respond to them, but I, I, I know some people, they just instantly click the delete button. They, they don't even open the email. I, I still tend to open emails. Um, so when I read yours um, and I saw how long it was, I thought like, wow, like this person's taking the initiative to reach out to me. I don't think I'm a very special person, but clearly this person thinks that I am. I think that says something good about their character. Uh, and so I, I said, yes. And, and I guess that's, you know, now, now here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and right. I would argue with you. You said you're not special, but I think everyone is special. Everyone has their own story to tell. Everyone has their own experiences to tell. And I'm sure yours is as exciting as everyone else's. Yeah. Okay. Um, what I mean by like me not being so special is I feel like I think people tend to 
maybe think too much of of me or i feel i feel like when some people like i tell them some of the things i've done they think like i'm you know really out there or really successful whereas you know in my in my mind i don't really think that's the case you know i think that in many ways i'm more similar to other people than i am different and i see this with my high school friends all the time um i think a lot of my high school friends are are again very similar to me they may have not you know written a book or given a ted talk but i think they certainly could like i think if they actually wanted to do it like if they actually put in the work I bet any of my friends could write a book or give a TED talk. Um, I know, again, that sounds really naive and like, but I, I genuinely think it's true that they could do that. So like, that's what I mean. I feel like there's this disconnect and I think it's called imposter syndrome where um, you, you know, you're, you, you, you always get positive feedback from other people saying good things about you. Whereas on the inside, you're like, oh man, I think I'm an idiot. You know, I think I'm not good enough. I think I'm terrible at everything. Um, I, again, that's of course a negative feedback loop and that's not the right answer either, but there, there's, sense, there's like this conflict where it's like, I'm getting all this positive feedback, but in my head, like, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not living up to their, their standards. Um, and secondly, like that ties into the other idea of what you said about everyone being special because you're right. Everyone is special. Um, and that's the reason why I believe that everyone can give a Ted talk or write a book because again, I'm more similar to my friends than I am different. So if I can do it then they can do it because they have their talents and I have my talents too. I am really glad that you mentioned this because that's exactly why I started this. Because, you know, like you said, there's this disconnect between someone who seems very successful and then thinking that, you know, their their life is so put together. They've got it all figured out. They're probably going to get into this school and that school and they're probably going to make that much money. And it's all so perfect for them. And I'm here just watching and not being able to do any of it. But that's not true. The people Absolutely. that you're looking at is probably just as similar as you are. They're going through the same challenges. They're going through the same experiences. They're thinking the same thing so you guys are really not that different i have tons of like insecurities like and the thing is like i feel bad because i feel like sometimes like i should open up about it more like to my friends right but like and i think that's one of the problems with me is like i sometimes i when i when i hear all these this positive feedback I, i kind of just shut myself out like i say like i'm just gonna ignore it like i'm gonna kind of put myself in my own bubble you know i'm gonna instead of instead of being vulnerable i'll just i'll just kind of fake it till you make it, you know, I'll just like not say anything. I'll be kind of cold and all of that. But I, I and, and that was what drew me to this podcast too. Cause like, if it was just, if you told me that you were going to give me a podcast about like something else, like entrepreneurship um, or something kind of like cliche, right. I, I, I wouldn't have been a, as interested, but I really was gripped by your podcast concept. And, and I think I made that clear in the emails that I, I mm-hmm. sent to you. I actually thought that the idea you had was wonderful. And it's the kind of podcast that I would want to make myself, like one that, you know, where we're focusing on, you know, vulnerability um, mm-hmm. and open experiences and, and how, you know, like all the nuances that, that goes into getting to where you are now as opposed mm-hmm. to this. New yeah. And it's it's so much more complicated than it what it seems to be. And the only way you can find out about how much went into it is if you talk about it. And that's yeah. the hard part. Not It's not easy to be vulnerable with each other, to say that I'm insecure, to say that, oh, that's what I think about whenever someone uh, applauds me for what I do. And so breaking that circle and breaking that cycle is very important. And that's what we're doing right now. So I'm really (laughs) glad that we're doing this. Um, I I, I was going to say, like, I feel like I'm not at the point in my life yet where I have the courage to like go up to my friend and just tell them that I feel insecure. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't have that courage yet. But I feel like this podcast is a way for me to indirectly express that. And I I wouldn't say that I'm comfortable in doing that either. But something that like triggered me to realize this was that when I started, so there's a stereotype about health science being 
everyone is, you know, really smart or everyone yeah. is well in that I've program or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Everyone heard it before. I'm surprised if you didn't hear about it. Mm-hmm. But so I didn't do well in first year. And I have a lot. Of, I was a commuter to campus. I live um, an hour away. So busing there was took a lot of time. And maybe a part of me used that as an excuse to not like to justify why I wasn't doing well. But it doesn't matter why. I just wasn't doing well, mm-hmm. whether that was like mentally or academically and things like that. And obviously everyone around me seemed to be doing well. And then we would sit in groups and things like that. And someone would start talking about, oh, like, there's, like they can't do this. They're struggling. And then I'll be like, me too. I'm struggling too. And they'll be like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And then we'd start talking about it. And then slowly I'd like reveal a grade, for example. And then they'd realize that someone else yeah. is struggling too. And then yeah. they'd, they'd be like, okay, but so no one, no, not everyone is doing really well. And the truth is a lot of us were struggling in some way. So it's, it's, it's about breaking that cycle and just, opening up, but opening up wasn't easy until I heard someone somehow complain about, or, you know, try to let it out, rant about the struggles that they were going through. They just wanted someone to listen to them and accept that rant. And then we both just exploded. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I I have two things to say about that. I think the first thing is like, like first year of like university is like a notoriously difficult year, Mm -hmm. right? So like, you know, the transition from grade 12 to, to university is, is a big leap for, for, I would, I would argue most people. Um, so I think part of that is, is, is just, is, is, was, you know, acknowledging that too, is like, it, it is a big leap, right? It's not, you know, it's not because, you know, maybe you're incompetent or insufficient. It's that it's meant, it's the purpose of first year is, is to, is to challenge yourself like you've mm-hmm. never been challenged before. The second thing I would say, I would say that I actually uh, empathize with exactly what you said very recently too, because I mean, obviously I'm in, I'm still in high school. I'm I'm in Mm -hmm. grade 12. Obviously the coursework I have is not as difficult uh, as the coursework that you must be going through. Um, But, you know, I was, you know, this year, I remember I was doing like physics, uh, like grade 12 physics, and I was like having a lot of like trouble with it. Um, I don't know why it was this year that I wasn't doing my best academically. I felt like when I was in grade 11, I did much, much, much better academically, at least like, I mean, like, I feel like now I've kind of recovered, but I would say for the first few months of school, I was really struggling to get my motivation up and my discipline up. And I did, yeah, like I, I, I did kind of poorly on like my first physics test. And like, I saw all my friends, they were like, it's, it seemed like it was easy for them. You know, like, I remember I have one friend who uh, sat beside me uh, and, and interestingly enough, he actually is applying to health science too. Like that's like, that's his dream program. Like my friend, his dream program is health science at McMaster. Um, so anyway, he was like, we were like in the same class and this guy, I like, I'm like, this guy's so much smarter than me, man. Like he's so good at physics. Like, I feel like he understands things so fast. Uh, whereas me, I'm like, I can't do the practice problems. Like I'm struggling. Even when the teacher helps me, I don't get it. Yeah. So I just, I felt a lot of that. Like I, I'm like, why is everyone else so good? And why am I so bad at this subject? And what, what made that even worse was that in grade 11, I actually did very well in physics. I, I actually got 100 in physics in grade 11. Um, but in grade 12, I was doing terrible. Like I was actually doing terrible. Like I actually didn't understand anything. And I'm like, how did I go from there to here? It's like, I'm getting worse. Like, it's like, there's a declining trend here. And it's like, have I reached my peak? Am I just, is my life just going to go downhill? From like, did I, did I like, did I like peak at like 14 years old? And ever since then, I've just been like going on a downward spiral. And I swear I've had those thoughts before. Like before, when I heard people say things like that, I'm like, oh, they're being overdramatic. They're, they're being sensational. They don't mean that, right? 
now that I've actually been in that depressed state, I've actually had those thoughts. Like I've actually genuinely believed that I was just going to go in a downhill spiral for the rest of my life because of that one physics class. Um, and I actually ended up doing well in physics. I actually got a hundred this year too, despite the fact that I did terrible in like my first like test. Like I, I did really, really bad on my first test, but I guess, you know, I just, over time, I, I found the the drive and motivation to continue, but it was a very hard class for me. And I, I struggled a lot with it. Something else that happens too, is that when you mentioned, for example, that you got a hundred in that class, which first of all, good job for doing that. I'm really proud of you. But when you mentioned that people would start to invalidate the experiences that you were going through right. prior to getting that 100, <laughs> which is such a big problem because we're so we're in like extremes on one side if you're doing really bad you're not comfortable talking about it because like we're not creating that safe space for 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 people to be vulnerable to each other and on on the other hand when you do something really well you don't feel comfortable like embracing it and celebrating it because you're afraid of the people that are in the middle you know saying that oh you're achieving so many great things why can't i do that and then the people who are struggling and things like that so it's it's a messy thing yeah and the funny thing is like just literally a couple days ago because like our course like ended like last tuesday basically Uh, i was like i was talking to my friend on instagram uh and and like both of us were saying oh man this course like physics was so hard man it was like so hard the thing was during physics neither of us said that like my friend i thought my friend i I thought dude i thought like my friend like felt like physics was so easy like i thought this guy was like just coasting along i'm the only one that's having trouble from his perspective, he probably thought that I was doing fine and that he was having trouble. So it really, it was a reciprocal relationship. So it was only after we finished the course and both of us did well in it, um, that we told them, you know, we started talking to each other, opening up, like saying, oh man, like physics is like, like the hardest course I've done this year, like blah, 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 blah. It was like way harder than I expected, blah, blah, blah. So like, yeah, it was like, it was definitely like what you were talking about when you were like with your friends in the study group and you were like sharing like, oh man, this problem is so hard. I, I definitely empathize with that experience. Mm-hmm. And it's important to realize that you are never alone, literally. Like what you're thinking, someone else in that room is right now. Yeah, Yeah, it's just you have to open up about it. Yes. Something else that I wanted to talk about is, you know, you went into writing the book without expecting any reviews or anything like that. But you did get reviews and you got a lot of them. Now, a lot of those reviews were positive things, but some of those were not positive as well. And that's normal because obviously you won't like not everyone's going to be satisfied regardless of what you do. But reading something like this can also get to you at times. Right. So when you did, I'm not sure if you did read a lot of your reviews, but I, I I know I would. (laughs) Yeah. So if, did you come across any negative ones and how did you react to those negative ones? Absolutely. I came across negative ones. It was, it was like, yeah, it was like two, I think around the time my book got published or a few months later, um, yeah, there was like this really big negative review that was gaining like a lot of traction and it really like broke my heart and I thought it was really mean. It was like a one-star review. Like all the other reviews were like four stars, five stars. And I was so upset about it that I actually emailed my publisher. Like I emailed, um, his name is Tom. I emailed him saying like, oh, you know, I had this one-star review. What do I do about it? Um, and the advice he gave me was like, there's nothing you can do about it. Just like move on. And so I guess I just kind of took his, his advice from there and I, I stopped letting those negative thoughts get to me. But I think, um, yeah, like this was a conversation I had to have with him. So, and, and I, I'm really glad that I opened up about this with him because I'm sure that, you know, he's, you know, in charge of this publishing house. He's talked with many authors before. So like he has the experience knowing what it's like to get negative reviews. And so since for me, it was like the first time 
he was able to provide me with a lot of like guidance and he kind of like act as like a, you know, like a mentor or I don't really like the word mentor. I feel like it has negative connotations, but like, you know, he, he, he gave me a lot of advice. Um, and I, I felt like he, he helped me a lot get through that dark period. Like he, I, you know, if it, if it wasn't for him, I probably would have kept thinking about those negative reviews and kept thinking about, um, you know, how they were tarnishing my image and all that, but he, he helped me kind of grow out of that. Why do you think mentor is, has a negative connotation? That's something that I'm interested in learning <laughs> from you. Yeah. So I guess I don't like when I say it has a negative connotation, I guess I just mean it from the perspective of like pop culture, maybe, or like, cause I feel like what I'm thinking of is like, you know, like Ty Lopez, right? He's like, Oh, here in my garage. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like that. Cause like, I, I feel like the idea of a mentor has been over sensationalized in media. It's kind of like, it's like those people, what, like there's this other guy, what's his name? Like Dan Locke. Like this, there's all these mentors out there that are like starting YouTube channels telling you how to make six figures. You got to buy my online course. You got to buy my book. You know, you got to, this is how you're going to, you know, buy a house in Florida, whatever. Um, so I feel like maybe it's just that side of me where I've like watched a lot of social media about people saying you need to get a mentor and like just these people seeming fake as hell. Like these people like just like paying thousands of dollars to like make their studios look nice and like create this brand image that isn't real. Like, I feel like those types of people are like the opposite of authentic, you know, like mm-hmm. there's some people that make a living off of making people buy their online courses. Um, so I think that's where I get the negative connotation of a mentor, but I don't think that in principle, a mentor is a bad thing. Like I think actually having a genuine mentor um, or genuine, like a teacher can be a mentor, a professor can be a mentor, um, a parent can be a mentor. Like, you know, having someone that you can like look up to essentially. I don't like the social media mentor, but I do like the genuine personal mm-hmm. mentor. But I think it's fine that you brought it up that way. I was just interested in learning about your perspective because the whole mentorship idea was not introduced to me until like later in high school. And then I realized the importance of it in university, especially at the time when I was struggling a lot. I always I needed a person to help me get through some of the things. I also needed someone to show me how to do some of the things. And and I think that everyone has some type of mentor, regardless. It could be your parents. It could be like someone that you work with, a teacher, for example, things like that. A lot of the people I know have someone they go to to help them figure things out. But mm. it's very interesting to see how that your perspective on that changes as you grow up. Because when I was younger, I didn't find you know me going for help to someone seem like an attractive idea. It makes me feel like, oh, why do I need them? I can just figure everything out myself. Exactly. But the truth is you can't figure out everything by yourself. You'll always need, there's always someone with more experience than you that can help guide you. They're not necessarily going to do the work for you or tell you how to do it, but they've been in like those shoes before. And so they know what it's like to go through those experiences. Yeah. And I would actually say I'm going through this even like right now myself. Like I feel like even now I'm still at the point where, again, I know at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about being rebellious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have that attitude, whether I, I, maybe, maybe, you know, I kind of hate to admit it, um, where I still do like, you know, being independent. You know, I, I still kind of feel a sense of resistance in like asking for help. Like I don't really like I don't really like asking my friends for help. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really want to ask. Because it makes you vulnerable and no one wants to feel that way. Exactly. Right. So like, I remember like, and I felt so bad about it afterwards because here I was 
in physics class. I had like two or three of my friends sitting next to me. All of us were in the same position and I never asked any of them for help when all of us were struggling with the same thing. Like all of us were struggling with the same question and like we could have just talked to each other. We could have just opened up and said, hey, how do I do this? Instead, all of us, including myself, and I was pro- I probably did this the most out of anyone. I just like, I just didn't talk. I was like, no, I'm going to figure this out myself. I'm going to go home. I'm going to do it. I'm going to come back the next day and I'm going to appear smart because, hey, I solved the problem and I was able to do it alone. Right. But it's such a negative, toxic mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen some of my other friends that have opened up and like they they actually work together and they collaborate together. Um, And and I think that's something definitely to learn from them. Um, And a second point I would try to make is that I know you talk about mentors being kind of like a direct mentor that you can ask for help. But I would also argue that there's a lot of indirect mentors, right? Like people like, you know, that people you just look up to, like maybe they don't explicitly give you advice, uh, but they're people that you you kind of see as, as being role models. Uh, and one of those role models for me, for example, is like my brother. I think my brother is, a, is definitely a, a big role model for me. I've always found that my brother has been smarter than me. And, and, and this kind of goes back to the idea of being like a first child, right? It's like, if you're like the first child, you tend to be like the smarter one. And if you're like the younger child, it's like the intelligence decreases linearly. I feel, I feel that's the relationship between my brother and me. I feel like my brother is like really, really smart. He just, you know, understands things quickly. He's very good at problem solving and analytical thinking. I feel with me, I, 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 I'm not as strong as him. That's one thing. The second thing is like, what I've noticed about smart people in general, and, and, he, and he reflects this, is they're very curious. Like they are very intellectually curious and they, they seek knowledge even when it's not required. Some people, for example, will only learn things because they're being taught it. Like they'll be taught the things that, you know, in school, like the teacher will say something and you're asked to memorize this. What I really respect about my brother is like, he will go out of his way to learn new things. Like he will go out of his way to read a book on quantum mechanics. Like he'll go out of his way to read a book about physics. And like, who does that in their free time? Like you could be playing video games. You could like be like watching a movie, but this guy's in his room reading books, like thick books about quantum physics. Like he does that for fun, right? And I think that's so respectable. I think that's so admirable that someone would do that. It's something that I want to mimic. I want to spend my time reading books and gaining knowledge and learning about scientific things instead of like watching YouTube all day or browsing through Reddit all day. I think that's something I see strongly in my brother. And that is definitely, I've never told my brother this, by the way. I've never said that to my brother. If, if your brother's listening to this, now he knows. <laughs> I don't know if he will listen to this, but if he does, maybe maybe, maybe I'll, I'll message him and tell, hey, listen to this snippet. But yeah, like this is something I wanted to open up about. So, and it's kind of something I have wanted to tell him before, but I, I haven't mustered the courage to do it. But yeah, I, I respect my brother's curiosity. I, I respect his intellectual drive. And I respect the fact that he will go out of his way um, to read books because he has this innate thirst for knowledge. This is the last question about the book and then we're going to move on, I promise. Do you have any regrets when it comes to how much you, time you spent during your summers to reach that goal? You always ask the perfect questions. Like, I don't know how to, like, yes, absolutely. Like, how did you know that? Yes, I've, I've thought about this many times before. Um, there have definitely been times, like, in the summer where I'm like, I wish I just spent more time, like, having fun. Like, I spent more time, you know, like, going outside, you know, playing with friends, um, going over to my friend's house, like, just chilling. I feel like I've always kind of missed out on that, that aspect a little bit. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't feel that way because I thought I was really special, right? I'm like, oh, screw, you know, screw other people, man. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to develop my own narrative, my own story, my own hero story, essentially. So I never, when, when I was younger, I didn't think I was missing out on anything. Um, I always thought I was working on this task. I thought I was on this noble mission, 
and that I was going to achieve this goal. It was, it's only now that I've, again, matured a bit that I've realized, yes, I did spend a lot of time doing that. And I didn't really spend as much time, you know, building social connections, learning about, you know, what my friends are into, learning, even talking with my family. Like a lot of time, a lot of my childhood, I just spent alone. And even now I spend a lot of my days alone. Like, it's not like, it's not, it's not even that I don't have friends. Like I have a lot of friends that do want to talk with me and they do want to hang out with me, but I like kind of close them out. I kind of like, I want to do like, I just, I just put myself in this box where I'm like, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be independent. I'm on my own mission and I'm not going to any, let anyone else influence that. And yeah, like this is still something I'm, I'm in the experience. Like I'm still struggling with this. And I've kind of in my head, like a couple of weeks ago, I told myself like, okay, next semester, second semester, partly because it's more chill, right? Cause most, it's mostly your first semester grades that, that matter for university. Um, but Partly also because I'm like second semester, I actually want to make an effort to like talk to my friends more. I want to make an effort to like be more social, to not just close myself up and always think that I'm better than everyone else kind of thing. Right. So like another, for example, like one way that this is manifested is like, I would often like just go home for lunch during lunch break. Like I just go home. Right. Like there were, there were times where I'd stay in the cafeteria and talk with my friends, but most of the time I just would go home. I do my own thing. But I feel like now I, I want to maybe maybe make an effort. And I don't know if this is going to turn out to be true or not. So, you know, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully, hopefully I, I will be able to maybe talk with my friends more and kind of hang out at the cafeteria and, and, and to not be so isolated all the time. Also, if you think about it from a different perspective, maybe the fact that you sacrificed these things when you were younger allowed you to recognize how important they are and maybe now put in an effort to focus on these things, which I think is very important because, I would say that even if you didn't sacrifice those things when you were younger, I didn't sacrifice those things when I was younger. When I grew up and had a lot of things on my plate, I started sacrificing them in a way. But then I also recognized it and I realized that just as much as you know, my work is important, there are other things that I find value in, like my family. And so if it's something that I value, then I need to work on making time for it as well. Yeah. And I think another thing is like when we talk about equality of outcome, like people will say, you know, how did I give like a TED talk, for example? It's like, why am I like, am I just good? Right. No, but the thing is, it's it's because of what you just said. It's because I spend so much time ignoring social circumstances. I got I was able to do these things not because I'm great, but because I sacrificed my social life. You know what I mean? Like I, I lost, like I, I lost stuff in order to gain something else. It wasn't like I just came out net positive. So whereas a lot of my friends had the benefit and the pleasure of like hanging out with their friends and, you know, having fun and, and having a good childhood, mm-hmm. I didn't really experience that as much. I was, again, like I always felt lonely. There were like periods in middle school. I was where I was extremely depressed. Like, like there were times where like, I was like crying in bed. Like my mom and I, we would like, we had like a meeting with my seventh grade teacher and my mom was like saying how depressed I was as a kid because I always felt that no one understood me. So like, it, I, I know, again, it seems really childish now. Like, it seems like, oh, come on, just get over it. Right. But like at the time it was like really, I felt really sad, you know? Um, and so when people think about like where I am now, it's not, again, it's not because I'm super, super great or above everyone else. It's because there were, there were sacrifices I had to make. Right. Um, and those people didn't make those sacrifices. They made different sacrifices. And, and, and that explains kind of where we're at now. It doesn't, and again, it, it, okay. So that was the first part. And I, again, I know I'm going kind of on a tangent here. The second thing um, I wanted to bring up was that there's this idea in society that you have to be precocious, that you have to be successful at a young age if you want to achieve great things, right? Like if you're, we, we, we tend to evangelize 
young people where like if you're young and you've done great things that means you are set for life like you're you know if you're young and you wrote a book you're going to be like a billionaire when you're older you're going to be on the forbes list for all of that what i want to say and what i want to caution other young people against is that it's not about being precocious that counts it's not about achieving things when you're young that matters and i'd like to use the figure of einstein as an example because with einstein he was not a super like precocious kid like he he was smart like i think you know there's a myth that goes around saying that he sucked at school that's not exactly true he didn't really get along with his teachers uh and he didn't always get the top grades in his class he tended to do well in math and physics but he didn't really do well in botany he didn't do well like in french or italian or his language classes so there were things he was good at and things that he wasn't good at and so with him like it's not like at a young age everybody thought this kid is going to be like the greatest physicist of all time he dropped out of high school when he was like 15 or 16 he moved across to switzerland from germany he failed his university entrance exam because he wasn't good enough at the general section of the exam and it's like okay this guy failed his university entrance exam i don't think he's going to be the greatest physicist of all time but he turned out you know to be again i mean one of one of one of the greatest physicists of all time so i i guess it's just the idea of like you just cuz you're young and you've done great things doesn't mean it's going to continue that way right it's a continual process of growth even if you know you you should always kind of work toward the next thing and and and, and to have again like a growth mindset i 100% agree and just because you for example like you might not have necessarily achieved so many things at a younger age or even my age uh that doesn't mean that you won't be able to in the future as long as you have the right mindset and even if you did achieve so many things at a young age obviously if you don't put in the effort and you don't have goals and you don't have ambition that's all you're going to do right i was again i was reading this book over the summer um and it was called the hidden habits of genius um by this professor at yale whose name was craig wright and he was basically like honing down on this exact point he was he was like showcasing all of these studies about child prodigy like people that were really 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 gifted as children like people that could like recite things backwards you know what i mean speak 10 different languages like play music blindfolded and they would like track these children over 20 or 30 years all of these really precocious talented young prodigies that everybody thought was going to be a genius and it's like 99% of them ended up doing nothing later on in life and the reason why the reason why is because there's too much positive reinforcement when you're young like when you're young and you're talented everybody everybody's like all these parents are like look at you you know look at you look at you look at you lena look how talented you are look how amazing you are you know everyone loves you you're so good you're going to be the best like don't even worry about the future and then you get this positive reinforcement and you never fail you never you never try you know you you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone right you have to fail mm-hmm. um you have to do things that you're not good at and so when you're cradled as a kid and you're you know you're you're taught that you're so good at everything it it creates this terrible toxic mindset and when you fail at something you don't try hard um and so yeah i think it's there there pro, there are pros and cons to to achieving a lot at a young age and as a person who quote unquote has maybe done a lot at a young age this is something i want to keep in mind every day i want to keep in mind the fact that just because i've done these things now doesn't mean i'm going to be anything i'm going to amount to anything in the future like you have to work hard for it every day where do you think you got that awareness from well part of it was from the book right cuz part of it was like the book explaining like again how these prodigies you know the study that they conducted about how most of them didn't end up doing much mm-hmm. in life um but that was kind of reflected off of my personal experience because that again i would say that's 
been the case with me. Like the case with me has been, I have received a lot of you know positive reinforcement as a kid. And I feel sometimes I just lack the resilience to do things now. Sometimes it's hard for me to get out of my comfort zone because I'm like, I've, I'm trying to maintain this image of excellence. And if, if I try to do something new and I fail, then people are going to laugh at me. And so I, again, that's part of the reason why I close myself out. But that's why I've realized, like I, I've realized how insufficient I am. Right. I've, I've realized that I, I kind of lack resilience sometimes. And I realize, and, and, and it's through that realization that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still, I can, you know, that I'm not perfect. Right. That it's like if I don't continue trying, then I'm just going to end up not going anywhere. So it, it's, it's, I guess it's just the idea that the future is not guaranteed. When I was younger, I thought there was this distant idea that I was always going to be successful. Now that I've thought about it more, it's like, no, like, you have to work hard for it, right? Like if I don't do it, like chances are, if I do nothing but sleep all day and not do anything, I'm probably going to end up living in my parents' basement. But again, I do think that because you have that awareness now, you'll be able to work on it and to make sure that that doesn't happen to you. But also making sure that you balance between making sure that you work hard, obviously, and achieving the things that you want to achieve, but also keeping some time for you to play video games and to go out with your friends and to make room for you talking and socializing and even sometimes working with people to achieve those things. Sometimes they'll give you the tools that you need for that yeah. little push. Right. So it's kind of like my dad, like he comes into my room and he like talks about like, make sure you're getting enough sleep, right? Like make sure that you're developing good habits, make sure you're not like staying up until 5 a.m. Um, this is advice I used to always ignore. Like I used to always ignore my parents' advice because I was rebellious as a kid. I used to always stay up very, very late. And this is something I still kind of do. I, like I stay up very late, way past my bedtime, you know, not developing good sleep habits, not developing good hygiene. And these are things that my parents have been telling me about every year. Like they always tell me, they, they always walk into my room, make sure you're talking with your friends, make sure you're being social. Don't just be, you know, an arrogant you know, don't, don't just be like an arrogant kid, right? Like try to actually have some humility, you know, try, you know what I mean? And my dad says that my dad's always like, Peter, you need to develop more humility. So like, yeah, like I think like what you were talking about reflects what my parents say to me. But the thing is, it's not arrogance. It's the fact that you have like, like you're thinking about things that you think others are not necessarily thinking. And like you said, you, there's some insecurity in there and all of that. That can be interpreted sometimes as arrogance. And I was going to exactly. bring that up earlier, but it's actually not that it's there's so much going on in your head that people might not necessarily realize. But it's only when we talk about it again that we see that. But I'm really glad that you brought that up because I know that a lot of people experience that as well and think that maybe they appear arrogant or something like that. But that's the case because of the things that are happening inside your head, which yeah. are a lot. <laughs> so, you know how we said like in middle school, I used to like read a lot of philosophy books. Mm -hmm. like I used to read a lot of literature and philosophy. So the philosopher I used to read the most, his name was Friedrich Nietzsche. So my math teacher, my seventh grade math teacher, he gave me this book, which contained a bunch of Nietzsche's aphorisms, or it contained a lot of Nietzschean quotes, basically, like just different passages from his writing. And there was one quote that Nietzsche made, which was, it was like a question. It was a question of like, how can things be found in their opposites? And I think that what you just brought up there is an example of that quote, right? It's like, how can arrogance be found in insecurity? How can insecurity be found in arrogance? Because I am very insecure. Yet when I ask other people, like my dad, they think I'm arrogant, right? Like, I mean, my dad, no, he's nice to me. He, you know, he's <laughs> playing around. But, you know, sometimes he does, he does sometimes, you know, when we're, when we're in heated arguments, he's like, why are you so arrogant, Peter? And in my head, I'm like, 
it's insecurity. It, it's it's really insecurities. It's like, but but if you think about it, it's like arrogance and insecurity are like opposites. So how can arrogance be found in insecurity? And I think that's what the, that's the quote that Nietzsche, the philosopher, was talking about. He asked the question, how can things be found in their opposites? So I think that was a nice connection there. This really ties into, you know, the whole mental health challenges that you may have gone through throughout your years. And a lot of people go through those. I know I have gone through a lot of, you know, anxiety and depression and things like that during that transition. And sometimes I go through them now. But how did you recognize how did it feel going through those experiences? And then how did you recognize that, you know, there's you need to do something maybe? Well, I guess it felt exactly as it sounds, right? Like depression just sounds terrible. Like it was terrible, right? Like it was really, <laughs> really, 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 really bad. I don't, I guess what helped a lot is like, like talking with my family. Mm-hmm. Helped because I, I guess the problem with depression is like, it's like a feedback loop, right? It's, it's a, a virtuous cycle where when you're depressed, you get even more depressed. Um, and it just, it keeps compounding on itself. And so what I would do when I was feeling sad is I would just close myself up. And when I didn't talk to people and I was just trapped in my own head, I would, I would keep repeating these negative things to myself. I would keep, you know, thinking in my head, oh man, I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to achieve anything in my life. All my, you know, my friends are better than me. They're smarter than me. And I just had all these negative feelings. It was, it was a really bad, it was like the snowball effect. And I would try to forget about it. Like I sleep, seek diversion. I would try to distract myself uh, from these things, but, but it's like, you know, you have to face your demons. You can't just ignore them. Um, so I, I found like, you know, definitely opening up about them, you know, with my mom, with my dad, just talking about these experiences with other people. Uh, you know, even one of my friends, um, I did open up a little bit. Uh, he, he actually opened up more about his life, which I found to be really, really eye-opening because this person in particular, um, I want to keep him relatively anonymous, but like he didn't really have a very good family relationship growing up. Like his father was abusive, you know, and, and still is abusive. And I didn't know that about him at all. So like when he opened that up to me um, and I was able to explain my side of the story, it, it really helped. You know, I, I it, it made me respect him more, um, but it also helps my own mental health clear my, again, it's like part of it is realizing that you're not alone, right? Like as part of depression is you think you're alone all the time because you trap yourself um, in your room all the time. You trap yourself in these negative thoughts. When you let them out, you, you realize other people are going through similar things. Um, and it, it definitely helps quell the depression a little bit. And I also think that when you started experiencing like things like this at a young age and you were already like doing a lot of successful things, it might be easy to feel like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way because I'm doing so well. Yeah, I know that's that's literally like you just summed it up perfectly. Like that's literally like and I think I said this before, right? Like I was saying like how in grade 11 in physics, I got 100. And then this year I'm like, dude, I don't understand anything. It's mm-hmm. like. It's like, I should be, I should be good, but yet I'm not good. And it creates this disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's the same thing with like, with my book. So after I wrote my book for a long period of time, I didn't really do anything new because I'm like, you know, I I wrote a book and I'm happy. And then I didn't really do anything after that. And I'm like, now I'm falling off again. (laughs) Right. And and so I actually explained this to my parents. My dad asked me, it's like, why do you want to give a TED talk? Because my parents didn't understand what a TED talk was. Uh, when I told them I was applying for the TED Talk, they thought it was a waste of time. Um, they actually thought like, dude, like I, like I, I, I was super excited. I was like telling my dad, I'm like, dude, I'm applying for this TED Talk. It's going to be so great, man. Like you got to be excited about this. And my parents were not having it at all. Like my parents thought that was the most idiotic, stupidest, 
dumbest thing you could ever do. I was like, why the hell would you give a TED talk? I don't even know what the hell that is. No one cares. Like, just focus on your schoolwork. That was literally the response I got from my dad. Like, he like he did not care at all about the fact that I was interested in giving a TED talk. He was very much against it because he didn't understand it. Like, I, I can't blame him for it. Like, he didn't, like, coming from, like, a Chinese culture, like, he didn't understand what that was because TED Talks tend to be more Western thing, uh, more of a Western thing. But I explained to my dad the reason I wanted to give a TED Talk was because I felt this hole in my heart from writing a book. Like, I felt like I'd written this book, I'd achieved this standard, and now I was going downhill, and I needed to regain the upward trend. So I felt like, okay, giving a TED Talk is a relatively ambitious thing. If I'm able to achieve this goal, then I can justify like my existence again. Um, so that was that was kind of the idea I had. It was like I was the TED Talk kind of served a way of like filling a hole in my heart, if that makes sense. Did it fill a hole? And see, that's the thing. It didn't. It it did for a little bit, you know. And that's the thing with every achievement. It's like the moment you accomplish it, you feel really, really, really great, you know. For like, you know, maybe it even lasts. Like, let's say it lasts a week, right? It's like doing drugs, essentially. Not that I've done drugs, by the way. Um, but it's like doing drugs. It's like you get a high and then eventually it just goes away. It's the same thing with any achievement. It's like I gave my TED talk. I was super thrilled about it, super proud of it. You know, and, and people on Instagram or like my friends or even people I hadn't really talked to that much in my school before were like reaching out to me. They were like, hey, messaging me, like saying, oh, congratulations. And I felt really good about myself. Like my confidence definitely improved. Um, but then like a month later, you know, two months later, time goes by. And then you just go back to, to stasis again. You, you go back to the same level. So what I've realized is that achievements do not increase your base happiness. Mm-hmm. I, I, I genuinely believe, and this is not something I believed before, but what I've realized is that no matter what achievement you do, no matter how great it is, it will probably not increase your base happiness. I think increasing your base happiness is something that comes from within. Like it comes from being self-aware. It comes from realizing you know, it comes from having gratitude, you know, it comes from building friendship. There was a Ted talk actually about a guy who said like, what, like who are the happiest people? And his, his study came to the conclusion that the happiest people are the people that develop the most meaningful friendships. And I'm like, I've sorely been lacking in that respect. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, I think, and that shows how important like it is that it's not what you do, but how you do it and what you get out of it and the fulfillment that you get out of it. So if it doesn't have to be this big thing, as long as you find it fulfilling to your goals and your values and your beliefs, then that's a good thing to do. Like you shouldn't be doing things just because, you know, they'll make you seem nice or you'll make you seem like this perfect, well-rounded person. It's about what you get out of that experience and how that improves you as a person. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I would say like with, for example, like physics, you know, like I would say a lot of people, you know, like, I think it's, it's a good thing, you know, you, you know, getting a high mark in a course makes you feel good. It's, it's, it's an accomplishment to be proud of, but I don't think it's on the order of like giving a Ted talk or anything, mm-hmm. but like for me doing well in that course felt like a really, really big accomplishment because I know like how, how, how much I struggled with it, you know, from an outsider perspective, they're like, oh, you know, okay. Yeah. He did well in the course. Great. But like, you know, it's like, whatever. Um, but for me, that was, that was a, a very big accomplishment. Definitely something that I'll have a, an impression on, you know, several years down the road. That's funny that you bring that up because when I was younger, I had a lot of hard time because I was fine as a child. And then I got to a point where I recognized everyone's awareness and judgment and things like that. And so I became very uncomfortable in being in groups and making presentations and public speaking and things like that. And it was so bad until like grade nine and grade 10 until I realized like I want to do something about it. And then once I started being comfortable in, you know, presenting in class. The first time I raised my hand to present first in class, 
was such a fun day. <laughs> like oh, I, every, yeah. I still think about it now. I'm like, like I did that to me. That was such an accomplishment to someone else. They'll be like, oh, you presented first in class. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, get out of. Yeah. You know, I, I know me, you, yeah. knowing how, how I was as a person before and seeing that I accomplished something like this to me, what that was the biggest thing I've done. And I think it also comes down to the fact that success is relative. Like there's no exactly. such thing as absolute success. You know, like we're all brainwashed as a society, you know, maybe, know. <laughs> like, like, like maybe writing a book is good. I don't know. Maybe, you know, like doing, like, and this is what I realized when I talked to my parents, right? Like for me, ever since I was a kid, you know, we would watch Ted talks in class. Like our teacher would put Ted talks on the projector. We would watch them and we thought they were great. So when I was like applying to give a Ted talk, I thought that was like a really big thing. When I talked to my parents, absolutely not. Like they, they had no clue at all. When my parents even told our cousins like in China or like rather my grandparents in China, they had no idea what a Ted talk was either. It's like halfway across the world. It's just, no one knows about it, man. And it's like, I think it's a great thing. Someone else might not think it's a great thing. You know, maybe I wrote a book. I think that's a great thing. Someone else might not think it's a great thing. So it's like success is relative. Even like the idea of money, right? Some people, they think that success means having a lot of money. I don't necessarily know if I'm in that camp. Like I, I, I don't think that I necessarily praise money all that much. I know some people think that success means raising a good family, right? It means building good relationships. So success makes, takes many different forms. And I would be skeptical of anyone who claims that they're absolutely successful. Moving a little bit from, you know, your childhood experiences, where do you see yourself going in the future? And I know that's a very broad question and I know that you're still young, but what do you see as, you know, what is success to you? What, where do you see yourself going? Yeah. So I think this is like another thing where people think that because I've done these things in the past, these great things in the past, that all of a sudden I have this clear vision, this clear 70 year plan of where I'm going to go. It's absolutely not the case. And I don't really know what the future holds. I mean, I wish I was confident in what I was going to do next, but I mean, like I, I have given it some thought, you know, I, I definitely want to do something in technology. Like I want to do something in tech. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, in my friend group, a lot of us are interested in like, you know, computer science, mm-hmm. you know, software engineering. So like my, my top program has always been like Waterloo. They have a software engineering program, uh, which is also quite well known. And so that, that's kind of been a program that I've always kind of aspired to get into. Once I get into that program, obviously, I guess the next step is a lot of people want to get co-ops, you know, they want to get internships at big companies like Facebook or Google or like these quantitative hedge funds. I don't know really if I want to do that. Like, I don't know if I want to get a co-op. What I mean is like, I don't know if I see myself going along the traditional path of I'm just going to get a bunch of co-ops and just work at a big tech company for the rest of my life. I know the goal, but I don't really know how to get there. Like, I know my goal is that I want to make an impact, a positive impact, you know, across millions of people through the use of technology. And maybe that means a startup, maybe that means a nonprofit, but something of that shape. And that wraps up our episode for today. I really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll be the first to know when each episode is released. It would also mean the world if you could leave a rate and a review. You can also feel free to follow on Instagram at htdipodcast or send me an email at htdipodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys in the next one.